Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the 25th chapter of the book of Acts. I pick up where we left off last week, right there in the middle of chapter 25, and we're going to mosey our way into chapter 26 this morning as well. The passage that we're beginning to look at this week, we won't finish because it's quite lengthy, and so we will cover the remainder of it next week. But we find ourselves at the end of this section of the book of Acts that we've been walking through for a handful of weeks now. After Paul finishes his missionary journeys, he gets arrested in Jerusalem And he's given the opportunity to defend himself and defend the gospel time after time after time. And in this morning's passage, we will see him defend the gospel for the fifth and final time. And after we conclude this section next Sunday, the only thing that remains in this book is for Paul to begin and end his long and arduous journey back to Rome to stand trial there and encourage the church there and defend the gospel there where he will ultimately be beheaded for his faith in a resurrected Christ. And so this morning we begin this passage that looks at that fifth and final defense of the gospel by the Apostle Paul. And it starts in chapter 25, continues through the end of chapter 26. Roughly speaking, the second half of chapter 25 is kind of a setup. It's setting the stage for Paul's final defense. And then in chapter 26, he gives his final defense. And so let's read beginning in verse 13 of chapter 25. And this morning, we're going to read through about half of his defense, uh, concluding our time this morning at verse 18 of chapter 26. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here in Caesarea, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem to be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. 
Then at command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appeared to, appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing de definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord and the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and in those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We're going to stop right there in the middle of Paul's speech and cover the remainder of it next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this book. We say that each and every week, Lord, we are so grateful that you have left us your word 
inspired by your Holy Spirit, spoken through human authors, preserved throughout the ages so that we can trust that this is your very breath. And as your servant Paul testified to his protege Timothy, it's all inspired and breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that through your inspired word this morning, that you would train us and teach us, that you would challenge us, that you would train us in all godliness, equip your saints, the church, the body of Christ to take up the mission that you have given to her to take the gospel to the ends of the earth for your glory. I pray that you would do that among us this morning through your word and by your spirit and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I would like to briefly walk through the narrative of chapter 25. Briefly, because as you probably recognize, there's a lot of repetition there. Essentially, much of chapter 25 is recounting, Festus kind of recounting what happened in chapter 24 as he brings Agrippa up to speed. But I I do want us to walk briefly through that narrative because it helps to set the stage for Paul's fifth and final defense speech, which we have in chapter 26. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, looking at Paul's final defense speech in that chapter so what what happens in the second half of chapter 25 is two things first of all festus the governor of judea at this point he brings king agrippa up to speed on what's going on with this guy named paul that's in prison there agrippa we're introduced him to him for the first time this morning he was a client king or you might call him a vassal king he was a king but he wasn't really sovereign he was more of a puppet king in that day and so he had reign over a part of the territory but ultimately he was answerable to the emperor in rome who at this time was nero and he was half jewish and the land that he was appointed over was the kind of the northeast section of palestine And he was allowed to retain the title of king in keeping with his ancestors who ruled and reigned in this area as part of what was known as the Herodian dynasty. And this guy's formal name was King Herod Agrippa II. We've seen many Herods in the New Testament at this point. His dad was King Agrippa I. And his death at the hands of the judgment of God was recorded for us in Acts chapter 12. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who ruled over Judea at the time of Jesus' birth. But Agrippa II here, he doesn't rule over the Jewish lands. He rules over the, uh, the, the more Gentile lands of Palestine, east of the Jordan and on into Syria. And so the context here is that Agrippa and his sister Bernice, with whom it was rumored he had an incestuous relationship, they come to visit this new Roman governor in Caesarea, this guy that we were introduced last week as Festus. 
Festus, as you recall, and as he notes here, had previously given Paul an opportunity to go back to Jerusalem and stand trial for his, against his charges um, against the Jews in Jerusalem, which would have been a death sentence for Paul. And so Paul, being a Roman citizen, he appeals to Caesar. And so Festus is now preparing to send him to Caesar, to send him to Rome. But he uses this occasion of King Agrippa and Bernice's kind of diplomatic visit to, to greet the new governor. Uh, Festus uses this occasion to uh, see if he can come up with, a, with what to write about uh, Paul. He, he knew that Paul was innocent. He knew that Paul had done nothing wrong, but he still had to write something when he sent him to Caesar. And so he's He's hoping that perhaps Agrippa, who's half Jewish, will understand the setting a little bit better than he does and help him understand what he's going to do with Paul. And so in these opening verses here, um, uh, Festus is bringing Agrippa up to speed on Paul. And he concludes three things about Paul's case. And these, these three things have kind of been thematic elements all throughout this section of Paul defending the gospel. Number one, that Paul is innocent. He says it here and he says it later. That Paul is innocent of any wrongdoing, at least in Rome's eyes. He's, he's innocent of any criminal charges. He, he's innocent of any civil wrongdoing. He's innocent. Secondly, that the accusations of the Jews really have a lot more to do with their own religion. And so perhaps that's part of why he's bringing this before Agrippa, who's half Jewish himself. Maybe he understands what's going on and help him know what to do with Paul. And then thirdly, he notes before Agrippa that the concerns of the Jews really center around Paul's insistence that Jesus is alive. That Jesus, who was put to death by Roman crucifixion in Jerusalem, is actually still alive. And so he tells Agrippa, that's actually what they're most upset about. That, that's, that's what they're trying to silence, is this thing about Jesus. He insists that he is resurrected. And so Agrippa expresses curiosity about Paul, and he says, I want to hear from him myself. And so they make arrangements for him to hear directly from Paul the next day. And so the last few verses of chapter 25, verses 23 through 27, uh, give us the setting for that, the setting for Paul's final defense. And in these closing verses of chapter 25, there, there are a couple of things that I want us to note about this setting. First of all, to see that this is really a very high-profile spectacle in Caesarea. It's a very high-profile spectacle spectacle. Luke tells us that the meeting place where this meeting took place was in the audience hall there. This would have been the grand audience hall in Herod's palace, the old Herod, his coastal palace there in Caesarea, a grand palace. And we're told that it was with, Luke tells us, with great pomp that Agrippa and Bernice come to this meeting. That word pomp there is the English translation of the Greek word fantasia, which is where we get our English word fantasy. And so this was a fantastic setting. The idea and the point here is that there was a lot of showiness. There was a lot of flashiness about this particular meeting. 
We might say today that this was a black tie affair. And not only was it a black tie affair, but it included the who's who of Caesarea. Luke tells us that many of the dignitaries and VIPs of the city were part of this meeting. So it wasn't just Festus and King Agrippa and Bernice, but he tells us it also include, included the military tribunes. More than likely, scholars tell us this would have been the, the five Roman tribunes who were responsible for soldiers there in Caesarea. Each tribune was responsible for nearly a thousand soldiers. And so these are like four-star generals. These are admirals in the Roman army there. Very important people. And accompanying with them, he says, are the prominent men of the cities, the VIPs, the who's who of Caesarea. This is a very high-profile setting. And I think it's just almost comical for us to think that God has providentially orchestrated this for Paul. Not only, as we've said, not only is God intending to get Paul to Rome, that's his ultimate goal because he wants to get the gospel to the nations and his means of getting the gospel to the nations is getting Paul to Rome. But in the process of doing that, he providentially orchestrates this setting in which little old Paul gathers before the who's who of, this, of Caesarea, the VIPs, the dignitaries, the kings and queens, in order to be a witness for Jesus in this very high-profile setting. What a cool thing that God is doing here. But, but Luke also records for us here Festus's introductory remarks. He had already brought Agrippa up to speed about what's going on with Paul, but now he summarizes Paul's case once again before these dignitaries that have gathered on the next day to hear from Paul. And really the theme here, once again, is Paul's innocence. Look what he says in verse 25. He says, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. The Jews says he shouldn't live anymore because of what he's done. But here's my conclusion, guys. He had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him to the emperor. Again, this is a theme that we've seen throughout this section. It's the second time that Paul's innocence is, uh, is affirmed in this passage. We'll see it again from King Agrippa in his own lips next week in chapter 26. But Paul, uh, Luke actually wants to to make sure that his readers don't miss this fact. First, that, that Paul is innocent of any wrongdoing, criminally or civilly. He goes to great pains to insist upon Paul's innocence. But secondly, he does this to show us that Christianity poses no threat, poses no threat to either Rome or any lawful government. It didn't pose a threat to Rome and it doesn't pose a threat to our government, any lawful government today. In fact, to be a Christian should be to be the very best of citizens in any kind of setting. And then lastly, Festus kind of explains his dilemma in the last couple of verses of chapter 25. Here's his dilemma. I got to send him to Rome. I got to send him before Caesar because he's appealed to Caesar but I got nothing. I, I don't know what to say about him. I know he's innocent. And so he's hoping that uh, Agrippa or maybe somebody from this who's who of Caesarea can help him figure out what to do 
with Paul. And so the stage is now set for Paul's fifth and final defense, which is going to take up the bulk of chapter 26. Agrippa gives permission for Paul to speak, and Paul's speech here takes up almost the entirety of chapter 26. This is the longest of Paul's speeches in this section of the book of Acts. In fact, it's the second longest of his speeches in all of recorded uh, history of the Apostle Paul. Um, and it's by far his most articulate and his most stylistic. We can divide his speech into five parts. We're not going to cover all of them this morning, but in the opening three verses are kind of his opening remarks to King Agrippa. And then he launches into a story about his upbringing, what he was like as a kid, and, and, and what his ministry was prior to this Damascus Road experience. And then he shares about that experience, what happened on the Damascus Road. And then he talks about his post-Damascus Road ministry. And then he concludes his speech with this heartfelt call for response for both Festus Agrippa and the others who are gathered there. Again, we're not going to cover all of this this morning. We're going to cover just the first three, and then we're going to cover the remainder of it next week. So in those opening three verses, we see Paul do three things. First of all, he expresses his gratefulness for this opportunity. He's grateful, grateful to God to be given this opportunity to be a witness for Jesus in front of this high-profile audience. Secondly, he acknowledges that Agrippa is actually very familiar with Jewish customs and Jewish controversies, and he's hopeful that perhaps that will help him understand his case. And thirdly, he asks Agrippa to listen, listen to him patiently, something that I also beg of you week in and week out to listen to me patiently as I drone on. So in his opening remarks here, Paul, again, as we've seen him all throughout here, he's kind, he's respectful of those to whom he's addressing and defending the gospel. And then he shares about his upbringing and what, was, what life was like before this Damascus Road experience. And in this section, he communicates three things. First of all, he communicates, I'm Jewish. I'm actually Jewish. I'm as Jewish as, as any young Jewish boy running around on the streets of Jerusalem. I'm a Jew, and if you, if you know the Jews, you know, that, and they know, that I was a member of the strictest party of our religion, the Pharisees. I was a Pharisee. I was Jewish. Secondly, he communicates, listen, what I believe, what I preach, and what I'm being persecuted for it is, is not something that is kind of an offshoot. It's not something different. It, it, it's actually inextricably linked and connected to Judaism. It, it, it's, it's a fulfillment of Yahweh's promises to our fathers. He says in verse 6, I stand here on trial because of my hope in what? in the promise made by God to our fathers. Now, certainly there are Gentiles in the audience, but he's speaking primarily to King Agrippa here, who's Jewish himself. 
And he says, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, the Jews, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. In other words, this hope that was given to our fathers is the hope that Jews have today. That's what I'm on trial for. I'm on trial because of that promise and how I believe it's been fulfilled. He says, and for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Paul is trying to show here that, that what he believes and what he's being tried for is not some strange new religion, but rather it is the fulfillment of Yahweh's promises to his people from ages past. And then he shares in verses 9 through 11 that his pre-Damascus Road ministry was all about persecuting Christians. That's what he did. That was his preoccupation. He would go out legally on orders from the chief priests of the temple themselves and drag off Christians to be tried for their faith. And he even says that when they were put to their death, he would cast his vote against them. And we should see the irony here in Paul's words. That what Paul used to do to other Christians is now being done to him. And perhaps we should see a, a, a further irony here in, in that not, not only what Paul used to do to others it was now being done to him, but in reality, Festus has pulled together this meeting to do what? To try to figure out, hey, what wrong has he done? What wrong has Paul done? When in fact, Paul here in these words admits himself that he did something illegal. Because it was unlawful for the Jews to put anyone to death. That was Roman responsibility. That was not the Jews' response. That's why the Jews in Jesus' day appealed to the Roman authorities to have them crucify Jesus and execute Jesus. Because they weren't allowed to do that. And yet Paul here is admitting that he was doing that very thing. That he was responsible for the death of people. If Festus wanted something to charge Paul with, he could charge him with this. Because he's doing that very thing here. He's admitting to that. But this persecuting ministry of Paul's ultimately led him to go out to foreign cities. And that's what leads him to talk about his Damascus Road experience, which is the third part of his speech that we see in verses 12 through 18. And this is, this is where I want, want us to camp out the rest of our time together this morning. Paul first talks about his conversion, how he comes to faith in verses 12 through 15. And then he talks about his commission in verses 16 through 18. How he comes to faith in Christ and how Jesus commissions him then to take that good news and tell others now, regarding his conversion story here, there are a number of similarities, but also some differences between this recounting of his conversion and the actual 
story of his conversion that we saw in Acts chapter 9, when Luke tells us what happened in, in Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road. And there's also differences and similarities with Paul's first retelling of his conversion experience on the Damascus Road. Back in chapter 22, during his first defense speech, as he defends the gospel and defends himself before his fellow Jews on the streets of Jerusalem, before he's ushered away to Caesarea. But there's similarities and differences between all of them. And I think it's noteworthy that in all three narratives of Paul's conversion, in all three, Paul is traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus in order to persecute Christians. In all three, a great light shows up from heaven and shines down on them in the middle of the day. In all three, as a result of that light, they fall to the ground. In all three, a great voice is heard from heaven crying out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in all three, Paul is given a commission to go and preach the gospel. So there's lots of similarities, significant similarities. But there are also two unique differences with this retelling of Paul's conversion that we don't see in the other two. First of all, there's no mention of Ananias here. You remember who Ananias was? He was the the guy in Damascus to whom Jesus sent Paul and where, uh, where God used Ananias to restore Paul's sight and give him his commission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But there's no mention here of Ananias in chapter 26. And by the way, there's no mention of Paul losing his sight here. Um, And so there's no reason to mention Ananias through whom his sight is restored. But, you know, the, the, the differences in the account, in my estimation, helps to show the veracity of this conversion. That what happened to Paul on that Damascus road actually happened. That that a great light appeared to him and a voice came down out of heaven after blinding Paul with that light and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus appears to Paul and he commissions him to the ministry, saves him and commissions him. So the, the fact that there are differences, actually, if you look at uh, uh, how, how the veracity of ancient texts are tested, that actually helps to understand that this is true, that this actually happened. There, there, there are significant similarities, but there are some key differences. If the accounts are exactly the same, then that might lead folks to consider the possibility that copyists came in. And, and as, as they were telling the story again, they went back and cut and pasted from the original story to make sure that people would think, oh, this is consistent from place to place. But that's not what we have. The, the, the unique differences that we have in the accounts actually show us that this is actually what Luke wrote and what Paul said in these different settings. And it, it helps to understand that this is actually what happened to Paul. So it, so it actually helps to prove the veracity of the Bible itself. That was free. You don't have to pay for that. But there's another difference here in these accounts of Paul's conversion 
that is noteworthy. Because not only does Jesus say here, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But he follows that up here in this passage, and he doesn't in the other, with that strange phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What in the world does that mean? Well, that was a Greek proverb in that day, to kick against the goads. And it would have been understood by the Jews here. It certainly would have been understood by anyone with any kind of agriculture background. An ox goad was a stick with a a pointed piece of metal on the end of it. And it was used to, to prod the oxen in order to steer them one way or the other. But periodically, the ox would get annoyed at that prodding and he would kick against the prodding. And the problem was with that is that the more he kicked against it, the more re- he rebelled against it, the more that goad would stick into his flesh and cause more pain. And so the more that he rebelled against the one who was driving the oxen, the more he suffered. So what is Jesus saying to Paul here? He's saying this, Paul, you're headed in the wrong direction. You think you're headed in the right direction, but Paul, you're not. You're not heading in the right direction at all. I'm the one who's in control, Paul. I'm the God that you say that you are serving. But Paul, you're not serving me. You're actually rebelling against me. I'm I'm trying to steer you back to the right path. What was the prodding of the ox goad in Paul's life? During this time, the other apostles in Jerusalem were preaching the gospel. And that's why Paul was so upset about it. That's why Paul was going from city to city to pull out the Christians. Because they were standing up for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he was the Messiah. He knew that. The core elements of the gospel, the core teachings of Christianity, church was already in place at this point. And it was pricking against Paul. And and Jesus is saying here, listen, I'm, I'm trying to, as I prick you with this ox goad, I'm trying to steer you back to the right path, Paul. Trying to steer you back to faith in me, in Jesus. Paul, stop fighting against me. Friend, you might hear, be here this morning and that might be exactly what God is telling you right now. Child, you're headed in the wrong direction. You might think it's the right direction, but, but it's not. I'm telling you, it's not. I'm trying to steer you back to me. And that pain that you feel, it's me prodding you to return, to steer you away from sin, and to steer you back to faith in me. So child, stop kicking against the goads. Stop rebelling against the discipline that I'm trying to give you, that I'm providing you, that's steering you to the right path, that's steering you to faith in me, faith in Jesus. And friend, if that's what God is telling you this morning, then I just exhort you, stop fighting against Jesus. 
Stop fighting against Jesus and start trusting in Jesus. Turn around today. Trust in him and follow him. This is how Paul met Jesus. Perhaps this is how you can meet Jesus this morning. So Paul shares how he was converted and then he shares how he was commissioned. Paul reports to us that Jesus said to him in verses 16 through 18, but rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Two things that I want us to walk away from this commissioning of Paul with. First, the commission that Paul received, we've received. And second, the message that Paul was sent to deliver, we've been sent to deliver. Same commission, same message, and we see them both in these words of Jesus in verses 16 through 18. First, let's look at Paul's commission. Paul's commission is our commission. The commission that Paul received here, if you look at it, it's really one of identity. Jesus wanted Paul to see himself in a certain way. Jesus said to Paul in verse 16, I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as what? As a servant and a witness. So there was a two-part identity that Jesus wanted Paul to take up in this newfound faith. First, he wanted him to see himself as a servant. Now, that word for servant there isn't the word that you might expect to see. Paul often refers to himself as a servant in his letters And the Greek word that he uses there is doulos, the the bondservant, the slave of Christ. But that's not the word that he uses here. This is the word huperetes, which literally means an under rower. It's a great word picture. You see, in ancient times, ships were moved through the water by rowing, by oars. And those oars were pulled by rowers who were underneath the deck working hard in the bowels of the ship doing the hard labor the the unseen but necessary task of of pulling those oars over and over and over over time this word huperete simply came to refer to an underling Someone who did hard labor for someone else. Unseen, unheralded, but serving hard and serving faithfully. This is how Paul saw himself because this is the identity that Jesus gave to him. I've, I've appointed you to be an under rower. Paul had previously written to the church in Corinth and had told them that that's to be their identity as well. 
It says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants, huperetes, under rowers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is how we should see ourselves. We are glad underlings of Jesus. We are under rowers. And then the second part of Paul's two-part identity is that of a witness. And we've seen this word before. It's the same word that Jesus used, the resurrected Christ used before he ascended back to the Father. In Acts chapter 1-8, he said to his followers, but you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. We are to be witnesses. It's the Greek word martyr. And, and, and though it literally means witness in the Greek, it, it, it means one who testifies to what he has seen and heard and knows. Over time, of course, that word transliterated into English came to refer to those who suffered hardship and death because of their insistent that Jesus rose from the dead, that they believed in Christ. But it literally means witness, but it doesn't mean a silent witness. It, it, it assumes that that witness is spoken, that that testi testimony is given and shared with others. And so this is what Jesus commissioned Paul, not just to do, but to be. And it's what Jesus has commissioned all of us who know him as Lord and Savior, not just to do, but to be. This is who we are. We are under rowers, and we are witnesses. That's who we are. We are laborers, servants, working unseen and unheralded, below the deck, in the bowels of the, of the organization, so to speak operating in unison with one another to the command of the captain to keep the ship moving forward, working hard for the captain. And we're witnesses, telling others, testifying to others what we've seen and heard about Jesus, that he is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God, that he is God who put on flesh and became one of us and lived the perfect life that we never could. And then was put to death in our place. Going to the cross to pay the debt that we owe. And he died that death, paying that price willingly. And then he rose from the dead. He ascended from the grave. Proving that he had defeated sin and death. And is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what we are to testify about. What we have seen and heard and know about Jesus. And so Paul's commission is our commission. We've been given the same commission. So is this how you see yourself? Believer, is this, is this your identity? That you're the under rower, working away, toiling, unseen, unheralded, following 
the tempo of the captain. And are you a witness? Not just a silent witness, but one who actually testifies. A a, a witness in this case, a martyr in this case, is, is not one who just simply knows and believes, but one who testifies to what he knows and believes. He tells others, is that your identity? Do you see yourself as an under rower, as a witness? If you are a follower of Christ, if you, if you claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is who you are. And you've been sent, not only with the same mission, but with the same message. Paul's message is also our message. Jesus says, I'm, I'm sending you to be a witness of me and of the things that you've seen of me. And this witness that you give, this testimony of me that you give, Paul, it's going to accomplish some astounding things. It's going to accomplish something amazing. And we hear Jesus say what it will accomplish in the last verse that we read, verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Church, this is is in essence the gospel. This this is the good news. Four things that, that Paul's witness for Jesus will accomplish among the Jews and the Gentiles to whom he was sent. First, it will open their eyes. Second, as a result of that, they will turn from their sin, from from the power of darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Thirdly, so that they will receive forgiveness of sins. And fourthly, so that they will be given a place among those who are sanctified. And all of this is activated by faith in Jesus And just imagine for a moment, little Paul in this grand spectacle there in the the palace of Herod and Caesarea before the VIPs of the city preaching this message, the message that I'm giving to you guys about Jesus is so that your blind eyes might be open to truth, so that you VIPs, dignitaries, so that you may turn from your sin, from the power of darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that you may receive forgiveness for your sins, and so that you guys, you might have a place among those who are sanctified, and it happens by faith in this Jesus that I'm telling you about. It's incredible what this message accomplishes, and it's the message that's been handed to us that we're told we're to be an ambassador of. And what it accomplished for Paul, it accomplishes still today. The gospel that Paul preached is the same gospel we're told to proclaim. And what it accomplished in Paul's day, church, it still accomplishes today. What does it do? First, God uses the proclaimed gospel to open the eyes of the blind. To open their eyes. The gospel we proclaim gives light to those who are in darkness. Gives sight to those who are blind. 
Like the great hymn writer John Newton wrote in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The gospel proclaimed gives light to those who are blind. A few months earlier, Paul wrote a letter to Corinth, the second letter. And in that letter, he was exhorting them to hold out the light of the gospel to the people in that strange city that God has sent you to. And he says to them this, talking about the lost in their city. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he's shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, church, when we declare the gospel, these aren't just meaningless words. They're not just words on a page. This brings the light of the glory of Christ to bear on those who are blinded by the God of this world. You know, there are a lot of blind people around us in the world today, aren't there? There are a lot of blind people out there. They think they can see, but they can't. They've been blinded by sin and unbelief, and we have the opportunity to hold out the gospel of Jesus to them, gospel light to them in hopes that they would put their trust in Jesus and see again. That's how God uses the gospel. Secondly, this opening of, of their eyes will be accompanied by their turning from sin. As Paul says here, quoting from Jesus, turning from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. The concept of turning from sin is part of the concept of repentance, biblical repentance. The, the word here, I'm throwing a lot of Greek at you this morning, but it's, man, it's, it's good to be able to look in and behind the original languages because they, they give us a fuller meaning. The word here is epistrepho. Usually in the New Testament, the word for repent or repentance is metaneo. Metaneo means to change one's mind. When we talk about repentance, we usually talk about how it means to turn, but that, that word metaneo literally means to change one's mind, whereas this word epistrepho literally means to turn, to stop traveling in one direction and to turn and travel in the other direction. Paul used both of these words, or not Paul, but Peter, in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 3, as he's preaching to the folks there in Jerusalem, he says, repent therefore, metaneo, change your minds, and turn back, epistrepho, change your minds and turn around that your sins may be blotted out. See, God uses the proclaimed gospel 
to bring people to repentance, to turn from their sin and self-rule, to turn to faith in Christ and his rule over their lives. Furthermore, this opening of their eyes and and turning from sin will thirdly be accompanied by uh, receiving forgiveness of sins. And then fourthly, being given a place among those who are sanctified. You see, we need to be forgiven for our sins. We must be forgiven if we are to be reconciled with a holy God. And that forgiveness isn't something that we can earn. That forgiveness isn't something that we can deserve by anything that we do. And neither is it something that God can just give us on no basis whatsoever. Just letting us off the hook. No, he can't do that because he is a just God. We're we're guilty because of our sin. And God can't just let us go. He he, he can't just forgive us willy-nilly and sweep it under the rug. No, justice demands that it must be rendered. Justice must be rendered. And payment must be made. And it was made. That's the good news. It was made at Calvary. Payment was made. Justice was meted out. And that justice was meted out on the very Son of God against whom we had rebelled. And on the basis of faith in this Jesus and repentance of sins, we are forgiven and the debt that we owe is paid by Jesus at Calvary. And having been forgiven and having no more debt, we're now given a place among those who are sanctified that word sanctified there in verse 18 means to be made holy or to be set apart as holy unto God and so to be given a place among those who are sanctified means to be given a place among God's family to be given a place among God's people the church the people of God to to go from being a sinner to a saint To be transformed from an enemy of God into a child of God. From an individual lost and wandering in the dark to one who is a part of a body now, a corporate body found and walking in the light. Church, this is how God saves people. And this is what happens when we share the very same message that Paul was given to proclaim, to be a witness of, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. God uses the proclamation of the gospel to open the eyes of those who have been blinded by the God of this world, to turn them from sin, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness that they must have in order to be given a place among those who are sanctified, the company of the redeemed, and is activated by faith in Jesus, by believing on Jesus, by trusting that his finished work at Calvary is our only hope for rescue, that throwing ourselves at the mercy of God by believing that what Jesus did at the cross, he did for me, 
that I have no hope apart from what Jesus did at that cross. My only hope is to trust in Jesus. And when we do, the proclaimed gospel activates the, our eyes are open. We're turned from sin. We've received forgiveness and we're given a place among the company of the redeemed. We're part of God's family once again. You see, it requires two things. It requires God's people to proclaim good news. And it requires lost people to trust in Jesus. And you know, as God would have it, that's the only kind of people we have in this room. God's people and lost people. God's people are those who have, by the grace of God, have come to faith in Jesus. If that's you, you've had your Damascus Road experience. And perhaps tonight would be a good night to recount your Damascus Road experience with your base group. God showed up in a blinding light to Paul. How do he save you? You've come to faith in Jesus by God's grace. He's shown you the light of the gospel. And he's shown that light in the darkness of, of your soul. And he's brought you to life through faith in his son. And so our response to this family is to accept the identity of an under rower. To accept the identity of that of a witness, a testifier. And to accept that we've been sent with a message the same message that Paul was sent with, a message that accomplishes the same thing that Paul's message did. It opens the eyes of the blind. It turns people from sin. It delivers them from the penalty of sin, and it gives them a place among God's people. This gospel that we have been given is so incredible. It's so amazing. It accomplishes so much. But in God's divine wisdom, it accomplishes nothing unless it is proclaimed. That is God's plan. It's his plan A, there's no plan B, as they say, to use God's people who have been redeemed by God's grace themselves to take that good news to those who desperately need it. So church, let's find a way this week to let the light of the gospel shine forth from us so that it may accomplish all that God intended it to accomplish. But then there are lost people here. Now, when I say lost, I mean that you're, in a sense, wandering in a maze or maybe a dark tunnel, and you're lost. You might think that you know where you are and where you're headed, but you don't. You might be headed straight for what you think is the way out of the maze, but it's just a mirage. And you'll find out when you get there, perhaps too late, that you've been running in circles. And there's only one reason that you're lost. It's because of your sin. Words you've said, thoughts you've thought, things you've done that disobey and Grieve the heart of the one true and living creator of the universe who made you for his own glory. Who made you to know him and find your greatest joy and delight in him. 
You, like every other person who's ever lived, have disobeyed this God. And as a result, the bad news is you're not his. And he is not yours. Either in this life or in the next. And so you're lost. You're lost in this life and you're not lost in the next life as well. But here's the good news. God loves sinners like us. God loves sinners like us so much that he made a way for rebels like us who had turned away from him to be reconciled back to him. And that way is not a path. It's not a way of living. That way is not a religion, a way of doing things, a way of acting and behaving. That way is a person. It's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God. The way is Jesus. So will you trust in him and be found? Be found. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you've seen fit to record for us on the pages of Scripture how you converted and commissioned your servant Paul. And we know, Father, that this is what you've done in our lives as well. Father, I thank you in the quietness of my own heart for how you intersected my life with the gospel. Who was I that you would save me? I wasn't like Paul in his specific sins, but I was like Paul. So were my brothers and sisters here. We weren't deserving rescue. And it wasn't a blinding light from heaven. But you and your divine grace, you opened our eyes to see the truth of the gospel. And you led us to faith and repentance of sins. You opened our eyes. You turned us around. We are forgiven because of Jesus. The slate is wiped clean because of what he did. And it is only by your grace that we are now part of the company of the redeemed. Father, thank you so much. But not only did you convert us as you did Paul, but you commissioned us as you did Paul to take that very same message to the lost around us. Father, we lift up those who are in the hearing of my voice, maybe in this room this morning, and they are lost. They recognize, perhaps for the first time this morning, their sin and rebellion against you. It may not have been just like Paul's, but it's just as vile as Paul's. Seeking to do their own thing. Seeking to live independently of you. Turning away from you. 
Father, I pray that in this moment they would feel the weight of that independence and that lostness. That they would look to Jesus for rescue. That they would see the hopelessness of trying to save themselves. That they would see the meaninglessness of trying to be saved by following a list of rules or a particular religious set of practices. That they would throw themselves at the mercy of you, Father, trusting that Jesus is exactly who you said he was. He is your son. He is God in the flesh who lived the perfect life, died in the place of sinners, and rose three days later, proving that he had defeated sin and death forever for those who trust in him. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would reach out of heaven in that symbolic, metaphorical, blinding light at this moment and save someone who is lost, who is made for your glory. Remake them in this moment by faith in Jesus into a worshiper of you. You deserve their glory. You deserve their worship, Lord. We pray that you would have it as you save them, as you walk them across the line of faith and give them the very same identity that we're to take up, that of an under-rower and that of a witness. Father, we thank you so much for the beautiful gospel, the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved us and the message of which you have now sent us to be used by you to see others come to faith. Thank you for this. Make us faithful in this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.